Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Terminal 4 at John F. Kennedy International Airport. You should not accept offers of transportation from anyone without prior arrangement. Mexico City. What did I say his flight number was? 1030, I think. It says arrived at 1248 in Terminal 4. Bienvenidos, welcome to New York. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> it's good to see you. You like Person your sign? I love it. Personal Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'll meet you around here. Long time no see. Hey, good to see you, bro. How you doing? Good, good. How was the flight? It was okay? It was good, but I just don't like flying. Yeah. So what's up, guys? <laughs> what have you guys been up to? I've uh, been in, I was Working. in court. All last I've been week. following you, all your tweets, all everything. Yes, yes. Episode 8, The Trial. This morning on In Depth today, one of the most anticipated criminal trials in years. A lot of people are going to be watching this one. Opening statements in the case against drug kingpin Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Are being Joaquin held Guzman, known as El Chapo, began today in New York. He was the leader. New York, the process del Chapo s'est ouvert avec fracas. The defense attorney said his client was not running a violent drug cartel and called for him to be acquitted. The trial is expected to last up to four months. We're about six weeks into Chapo's trial. Covering it has been intense. Everything about the case feels historic. This is the first time ever a case against a Mexican drug kingpin has gone to trial in an American court. All the other major traffickers that have been extradited to the U.S. from Mexico have pled guilty and cut deals with the government to get lighter sentences. And now a lot of those guys are being called to testify against El Chapo. Personally, I never thought this day would come that the trial would actually happen because I didn't think Mexican government would let all of the details about corruption be unveiled. A lot of this stuff that has come up in court is what we as Mexicans already feel we know, that their government is corrupt. The high-level officials, including presidents, have taken bribes from cartels. The prosecution is expected to call a total of 16 of these witnesses during the trial. Some of them have already taken the stand. The first one was Jesus Zambada, the brother of El Chapo's partner in the Sinaloa cartel. He talked about bribing officials from nearly every level of the Mexican government. 
Another cartel guy named El Gordo, El Chapo's former lieutenant, testified that El Chapo tried to get him killed four separate times, once by throwing grenades into his prison cell. And then there was Chupeta, one of the cartel's main coke connections in Colombia. Chupeta has had a bunch of plastic surgery and looks like a cartoon villain, with huge cheekbones and skin stretched too tight over his face. He admitted to ordering 150 murders and said he and the Sinaloa cartel shipped 40,000 tons of cocaine to the U.S. But two of the most important witnesses are actually twin brothers who worked directly for El Chapo, making millions running his drugs into the U.S. until they turn on him. Those brothers, as we are recording this, are expected to take the stand this week. It was their cooperation that provided some of the most valuable intelligence the U.S. government has ever gotten on Mexican cartels. These twins, the Flores brothers, are American, born and raised in Chicago. If the Sinaloa cartel was a corporation, its U.S. headquarters would be here in Chicago. Since the mid-90s, Chicago has essentially been considered the Sinaloa cartel's main base of operations in the United States. For good reason, Chicago's location and easy access to a wide variety of transportation. So you're saying, in essence, the most powerful drug lord in the world is operating out of this city. I'm saying the most dangerous criminal in the world is Chapo Guzman, and this is one of his hubs. It really is Chicago that put Chapo on the map in the U.S. In 2013, the Chicago Crime Commission named Chapo public enemy number one. He was the first guy to earn that title since Al Capone. And according to the DEA, the Sinaloa cartel supplies 80% of the drugs on Chicago's streets. And that's where star witnesses Pedro and Margarito Flores come in. Their playground was Chicago. Their toys, luxury cars, and jewelry. Pedro and Margarito Flores started out as street-level dealers in Little Village. Authorities say they ran the largest drug distribution network in the history of Chicago. Until a few years ago, the Flores twins were two of El Chapo's most trusted partners in the U.S. They started out when they were just 17 years old, and over the course of a decade, they built an empire worth an estimated $2 billion. Then, they decide to rat on El Chapo. Excuse the door, it's super heavy. Okay, thank you. And then you guys can sit either, either seat. Okay. Hi, I'm Mitch, I'm the engineer. Hi, how are you? So, who is here? Okay, Olivia. Olivia, nice to meet you. We're not, we don't have a, a visual, like, oh, just, visual? Audio. just audio. Okay, thank no, you. Right. I want to take off my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> we did an interview earlier this morning, yes. yeah. and um, we were in full wig just because it was a visual as well. Uh-huh. When you first started, was there, like, an element that is like, oh, this is fun. We get to, like, change our identities and dress up and... Disguise, your, disguise <laughs> no. yourself a little bit? No, he gets no. it because they don't want people to kill <laughs> no, them. No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's very different. Sometimes I'm, I'm telling me, I'm like, I don't even know what's real anymore. Um, so I'm Olivia Flores. I'm married to Margarito Flores. I go by this name just because I don't want anybody to know my real name because we're in hiding. My husband cooperated against Chapo Guzman, and we have to keep a low profile because we are basically being hunted. Um, my name is Mia Flores. Um, I am married to Pedro Flores, uh, and 
Mia Flores, of course, is not my real name. And um, I live in hiding and live in fear of, of Chapel and his henchmen. While their husbands are in prison, Mia and Olivia receive protection from the federal government. They wear wigs and glasses to disguise themselves in public and live in an undisclosed location. We talked to them in New York the week before Chapo's trial began. No one, not even Mia and Olivia, knew when their husbands would take the stand. Yeah, it's just everything is still up in the air, which is crazy because it's like less than a week away. Mia and Olivia and the twins all grew up on Chicago's west side. I grew up in the Pilsen neighborhood, which is right next to Little Village. Little Village and Pilsen are the largest Mexican-American communities in the Midwest. You know, my father is a Chicago police officer, and, um, you know, he, he worked hard his whole life, and he taught us how to do the right thing. In fact, both Olivia and Mia's fathers were Chicago cops. And in one of the many twists that makes their stories seem more like Hollywood than real life, they both ended up marrying brothers who came from a family of drug traffickers, identical twin brothers. Mia remembers when the twins moved into her neighborhood. She and Olivia knew them as Peter and Junior. So um, when he moved into my neighborhood, it was kind of ironic, you know, him and his family, who, of course, my father was uh, one of the police officers that raided his home. The raid on their father happened before they were born, while their mother was still pregnant. Their dad was sent to federal prison for drug trafficking. He was gone till the boys were seven. When he got out of prison, you know, they were just so eager to learn from him. Like, they loved him. Like, they just wanted to be in his life. And, you know, he had these two little boys putting their hands in the gas tanks, pulling out his drugs that he would smuggle. Peter and Junior worked with their father and older brother smuggling drugs from Mexico. By around 1998, they'd started their own operation. Their first drug transaction being 30 kilos of cocaine which is well over a million dollars. And we're talking about 17-year-old kids, you know, moving this kind of work in Chicago. Before long, they were wholesalers, moving hundreds of kilos a month across Chicago and to other Midwestern cities. When they started dating their future husbands, Olivia and Mia were in their early 20s, and they knew the twins were trafficking. The guys ran a huge operation. When did you first realize that they were kind of a big deal in the drug business? Oh, I would have to say, um, so when I, I, when I started dating Pedro, he, he had to stop at one of his houses. Um, my brother-in-law and um, my husband, they would have these stash houses and like all throughout the cities and the suburbs. One being um, that I remember was right by the Oprah studio. So this is a really beautiful town home. And when I went in the house, it this like a wall opened up and, it, you know, there was like money stacked and it was, you know. What do you, so, mean, what do you mean the wall opened up? Like it just it just opened up like you can actually walk in there. So you just walk in like the wall. Hydraulics, like hydraulics. Like, yeah, it just like comes out like and you just very... take a couple steps in there. So, um, so really like you'd see in a movie where they pull a book yes, off the shelf yeah, and then yeah. magically oh, yeah, the door yes, pops open. Yeah, yes. 007 stuff just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just seeing that and I was like, of course. Of course, you know, you don't, I, I, I don't know if I took it in like I should have being so young. We're talking 21 years old, driving around in Bentleys and Rolls Royces. But by 2004, the DEA caught up with him. Every drug dealer's nightmare is when your phone is going, you know, ringing, 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 like, you know, something's going wrong. The feds raided their homes and stash houses, 
arrested their workers, hit their whole operation. Olivia and Junior were already living in Mexico when it happened. The morning after the raid, Peter fled the country and met up with them. Olivia had hoped that moving to Mexico would be a path out of dealing drugs. I told my husband, let's just stay. I don't want to go back to Chicago. I just can't take it. Instead, it only takes him deeper. At that point, they were fugitives of the U.S. I was like, oh my God, his partner in crime is here. <laughs> He's, this is like, we take one step forward, we're taking two steps back. After a few months, Mia, who was 22 at the time, decided to follow Peter to Mexico. She lied to her parents and told them Peter had an opportunity to develop real estate. The truth was that the twins were expanding their drug trafficking business. They just started upping their stash houses. They started recruiting more workers. They, I mean, they would get on Google Earth and they would start going down the street to see where they want to get their new stash houses. At first, the twins worked with the Sinaloa cartel via middleman, a friend of their dad's who they called their uncle. Through him, they were buying millions of dollars worth of drugs in bulk and distributing through the rebuild networks in the U.S. Within a year, they are working directly with El Chapo. Everything changed. That was like a whole other level. It all starts with Peter getting kidnapped. This is actually the second time it's happened. This time, Junior decides to go straight to Chapo. So we're sitting there, Mia's in tears. I'm pregnant, I'm in tears. And my husband's basically saying that he's going to Sinaloa because he needs to speak to Chapo. He went because he thought Chapo was the only person who could free his brother? Exactly, because um, nothing happens in Mexico without Chapo knowing. And so I'm like, there's no way you're going to Culiacan. And he was like, I have to do this because my brother's not going to get out of this. And if I don't go find out what's going on with him, they're going to kill him. And he leaves. And I basically want to die because me and I thought that we were never going to see Junior again. Like, he was not coming back. Now, at this point, the twins have never met El Chapo. But Junior talks to cartel members in Sinaloa and managed to set up a meeting somewhere up in the mountains. Olivia says the cartel flew him up there in this little Cessna. So my husband's standing there and he's looking over the mountaintop. He said it was like the most magnificent like view you could possibly imagine. And he's just standing there waiting for him. And here comes Chapo walking up the stairs with his baseball cap on. And, you know, he just comes in like, hi, I'm Chapo Guzman. I'm Joaquin Guzman Loera. He's like, well, what do you want? Junior tells Chapo he's trying to find his brother. On the way there, Junior had learned that he and his brother were getting scammed by their uncle, who hadn't actually been paying the cartel. He'd just been pocketing the twins' money. So Junior decides to come clean with Chapo. He tells him, look, we owe you money, a lot of money, almost $10 million, but it's not our fault. Junior thinks he has a way to prove it. He's like, you know, I brought my ledgers, and I would like to show you my books. We have written down every payment that we've ever made. So Chapo calls over to his worker, and he's like, go get my books. Apparently, El Chapo and Junior both keep really detailed business records. They even have a similar accounting style. Every transaction gets written down in these ledgers. 
Chapo sees all this and decides Junior's telling the truth. So he makes a deal. If the twins can get him the money they owe, he'll make sure Peter is released. And they can deal directly with El Chapo. No more middlemen. Which is exactly what they do. When our husband started working with Chapo, it, I mean, we just seen from, it was like night and day. I mean, you would just see these men just coming to the house and you knew exactly what they were doing. Different associates started coming around. Um, they were driving up with the, Ferraris, yes, with Lamborghinis. Super they looked like yeah. movie stars. Yes. It was like this whole cartel world mm-hmm. that we were not used to. Now Peter and Junior are literally moving tons of drugs. They started, you know, using these tunnels, and we're talking trains, we're talking tractor trailers. They've expanded across the United States now and into Canada, beyond Chicago and the Midwest to New York, Philly, and Vancouver. In Atlanta, in L.A., and so and all over the East Coast. So it was just, I mean, there was so much going on. It was like nonstop. In grand jury testimony, Peter and Junior explained that Chapo and his partner Elmayo Zambada were responsible for getting the drugs across the border and into the United States. From there, the twins would take over with distribution. They move huge loads, up to 300 kilos of coke at a time. They also started to learn about El Chapo's other smuggling methods, like how El Chapo was using 747 planes to get massive loads of coke up from Colombia. According to their testimony, Chapo had the seats taken out of planes and sent them down stocked with clothing that was supposed to be humanitarian aid. Then on the return trip, they'd fill the plane with upwards of 13 tons of cocaine. The planes would land right at the Mexico City International Airport, where Chapo's guys would pick up the drugs. Remember, the twins are still wanted in the U.S., Chapo is keeping an eye on them, but even he can't protect them. As the years went by and as we went through everything, I seen that most of the happy times were always overshadowed by the bad. So I got immune to it. But things started to really turn on Mia and Peter's wedding day. She says a Mexican customs agent had figured out the twins were fugitives and showed up to shake them down. They were ready to pay until Chapo got wind of what was happening. Don't pay him shit. Nothing's going to happen to you because I know when the U.S. is coming. I get the word. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're my people now. Nobody's going to grab you. But it didn't quite turn out that way. A year later, they returned to Puerto Vallarta to meet some businessmen from China who want to supply the cartel with the chemicals to make meth. What they say happened next is impossible for us to fact check. But here's what she told us. So we're at the beach house, and um, of course, you know, anyone that comes from another country, from even from the States, the first thing they want to do is hit up the strip club. <laughs> so, we're, and me and I, we're like, we don't, like, we're inseparable. Our husbands aren't going anywhere without us, so we're like, we're going too. Olivia notices a guy across the club is staring at them and lets Junior know. He's like, what do you mean? Like, of course he's staring at you, like... Girls in Mexico don't come to the strip club. And we're laughing. And then all of a sudden, you know, time went by and he's, I still see him staring. And I'm like, man, something is going on. Like, this guy is like, there's something not right here. She says the creepy guy at the club turned out to be the same customs agent who tried to extort them on Mia and Peter's wedding day. And all of a sudden he gets up, he walks past us. And then five minutes later, you have like a group of armed men dressed in black with ski masks on, 
with machine guns and they just ran up on us and they had a, you know, AK-47s pointing to our heads. We were on the floor. All of them then get dragged out of the club and thrown into Suburbans. The gunman put Olivia in the front seat next to the driver. So I go and I, like, had my next cell phone. I grab my next, I'm holding it down and I am hoping that my brother-in-law can hear me that's back at the house. She has one of those cell phones that works like a walkie-talkie, and she manages to call her brother-in-law without anyone noticing. And I'm screaming, like, what do you want? Like, tell us what you want. Like, we'll pay you. Like, what do you want? They get taken to some location nearby where they're tied together with their hands behind their backs. The phone rings. The agent is like, si, senor, si, senor, si, senor. And he hangs up the phone and he was like, who the fuck did you contact? Who did you contact? He was distraught. He looked like he was scared and I didn't know what he was going to do, if he was going to like shoot me in the head. Like I had no idea what was going to happen. That call Olivia made in the car, her brother-in-law back at the house had heard it and called Chapo. The kidnappers are shook. They release the women right away and they head back to their beach house. I'm trying to get my son's things. I'm trying to get whatever we can get. And then all of a sudden, here comes like this, you know, convoy of cars, pickup trucks, men, like machine guns. And I'm like, oh my God, we're not going to make it out of here. And then one of you know, I don't know if it was Junior or Peter. They look exact. They're identical twins. They jump out. They actually had federal agents there, and they actually escorted us back to Guadalajara, back to safety. Mexican federal Mexican agents. federal agents, which was like shocking. At the time of the kidnapping, Mia and Olivia are living in Guadalajara, and they both find out they're pregnant, and they decide they have to do something. We just wanted out of the life. But our husbands did say, you know what, like, we can't just stop. We can't just turn the faucet off. Like, this, we're like the running water. Like, we make these people money. You can't just say, you know, I'm going to retire. For a long time, Olivia and Mia and their husbands thought the only way out of the drug trade was to get killed or go to prison. And it seemed like getting killed was the more likely scenario. Around this time, El Chapo goes to war with his partners, the Beltran Leyva brothers. And the twins are forced to pick a side. Instead, they come up with another option to break away from the cartel, one that's even crazier than getting involved in a war between traffickers. They reach out to the DEA with a message. We can give you El Chapo. Olivia and Mia say the DEA is totally unprepared. At the first meeting, the feds are asking about street dealers and stash houses in Chicago. Low-level stuff. Peter has to break it down for them. He gets a pen and a notepad and draws an organizational chart of the cartel. It has El Chapo and his partner El Mayo at the top. He draws a straight line from their names to himself and Junior. Only then does the DEA understand what they have, and they still aren't prepared. They went to Radio Shack. I think they bought, like, you know, those $12.99 recorders, and they were just recording every conversation that they can get on. The twins cooperated for months, but they also kept smuggling drugs. They were secretly recording phone calls and still going to the mountains to meet with Chapo. On one trip, Junior asked to use Chapo's satellite phone to call and check on his wife so that they could pass that number along to the DEA. The whole time, they are terrified, thinking the cartel will find out. 
when they were recording and um, their associates were there, some of the Mexican associates, and they had their little earbud sticking out of the bookcase. And I'm just, you know, we're sitting there and I'm like, oh my goodness, if they see that earbud, you know, what could happen to us? And just these little, little things that one after another that, you know, they could have find, they could have found out anytime. Finally, they get the one call they really need. We were sitting there, we were having a dinner. We had a lot of people over, and all of a sudden, um, Chapo calls. The brothers grab the phone, a recorder, and head upstairs. Me and I look at each other. We know exactly what's happening, that they're upstairs and they're recording. They start haggling over the price per kilo of heroin. Peter asks El Chapo if he can knock five pesos off the price of a kilo. That's $5,000. The brothers are buying 20 kilos in this deal, making it an even $1 million. Chapo tells him that price is fine. Peter gets the whole conversation on tape. Once they got that recording, we knew, like, that was the end. The twins end up recording dozens of conversations with various Sinaloa cartel members. They hand over info to the DEA on dozens of large drug shipments and the locations of important stash houses. I mean, everything just started falling like a domino effect one after the other, load after load, shipment after shipment. In one bust, the feds grabbed nearly $5 million in cash from a stash house outside Chicago. Days before that, they seized 600 kilos of coke during a raid in L.A. The cartel is also starting to catch on. They know someone is rotting, and they are asking questions. A few weeks later, the twins get a call from the DEA saying they have two hours to get to the airport. But they can't bring Olivia or Mia or their kids. Mia's baby is barely a week old. Olivia's seven weeks. And the DEA has no plan to get them out of Mexico. Here I am running through my house like we have to get the fuck out of here. Like we have to make a run for the border, getting whatever we need because we know that we're going to be hunted. We know that there's no turning back. They say they drive all night to the border and cross over into Laredo, Texas. They're allowed to enter. They have not been charged with any crimes, though they did have to forfeit millions of dollars. The Floreses would have received life sentences had they not come to federal authorities in 2008 and offered to cooperate. In the pantheon of drug prosecutions in the history of the Northern District of Illinois, this case stands at the highest level. The brothers, now 33 years old, were sentenced to 14 years in prison each last week in Chicago. Peter and Junior were already in federal jail, and that's where they remain in special custody designed to keep cooperating witnesses alive so they can testify. They're scheduled to be released in 2021. For a long time, the U.S. government just kind of sat on all the information the twins had collected. And Olivia and Mia figured all the risks that their husbands had taken were actually for nothing. The Chapo really was untouchable. When the twins appear in court to testify, those tapes would be played. And that's expected to be this week. Every drug trafficker looks up to Chapo like he's this like he's their god. So when you have now Chapo sitting in a US courtroom, I know that puts a lot of fear in a lot of people that are in this business that are continuing to break the law and continuing to bring drugs into the US. So I think that you know this is really going to send out that message that nobody's untouchable.
the very first day of jury selection, when Chapo emerged from the holding area outside the courtroom, it was sort of jarring. It was the first time I'd seen him not in his prison-issued uniform. He was wearing a designer suit with a really wide-collared shirt, which he had unbuttoned to about the middle of his chest. To me, it sort of made Chapo look like Tony Montana from Scarface. When we came back from a break in the proceedings, I noticed he had it buttoned up to the top, like maybe his lawyer had said something about it. That's pure Badirawato style. He's still that little boy from Latuna. It's pretty incredible that he's in New York, in this courtroom, at all. Some authorities in Chicago actually think he should be on trial there, because they believe his drugs fuel the street gangs that are responsible for a lot of the city's gun violence and drug addiction. But the thing is, you can't draw a straight line from Al Chapo or anyone else to the murder rate in Chicago or to the overdoses there or any other city. There is no straight line to one person. That's not the way it works. So you destroy one group in Mexico and then another one rises to power. How powerful is this new Jalisco Nueva Generación cartel? It is a very powerful criminal group, Jose, very well organized. Earlier this year, Chicago named a new public enemy number one a guy called El Mencho. He's the head of the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which was born as a branch of the Sinaloa Cartel. New Generation Cartel's April 6th attack was a military-style ambush that killed 15 Jalisco State Police. El Mencho is supposed to be behind all this extreme violence that's happening right now in Tijuana, Acapulco, and Guadalajara. 90% of the heroin in America comes from our southern border, where eventually the Democrats will agree with us and will build the wall to keep the damn drugs out. To hear Trump tell it, putting up a wall and closing the border is going to help win the war on drugs. Even though many of the people coming to the U.S. from Mexico and Central America are fleeing gang violence that U.S. policies and actions helped create. Under President Trump, the DEA is also doubling down on drug policies that have failed to work for decades. And in Mexico, there is a new president. In these times of unbridled violence and corruption, Mexicans have taken a leap of faith. For the first time, Mexicans have chosen a left-wing populist, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who promised to radically change how Mexico fights the drug war and pull out the military from the front lines of the fight against the cartels. He's only been in office for a few weeks, but the violence is only getting worse. Right now, it's nearing the highest it's been since the war on drugs began. And he already seems to be backing away from that plan. Well, it seems to me that we will have to wait and see what he can bring to the table. The end of the story is usually where everything comes together, gets tied up, but not this one. Because the drug war isn't one long story with a single ending. It's millions of stories that overlap, intersect, and even contradict each other. And it's linked with so many other issues. Corruption, violence, economics, migration, you name it. Which is maybe part of what makes Chapo such an attractive symbol. He's one man who prosecutors can point to and say, there... See, that guy is the drug trade. He's a tidy narrative device. It seems certain to me that Del Chapo will be found guilty and spend the rest of his life in an American prison. What remains to be seen is what exactly the trial itself will ultimately come to stand for, or when, if ever, the drug war will end. 
This trial isn't just about determining guilt or innocence and meeting out a punishment. It's a meticulous laying out of events. And if it's done right, it could also be something more. A public reckoning. We dedicate this production to the memory of Javier Valdez, whose work continues to inspire us. This podcast was reported by Miguel Angel Vega, Kate Osborne, and me, Keegan Hamilton. Kate Osborne is our senior producer. Annie Aviles is our managing editor. Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Miguel Fernandez Flores is our associate producer. Ryan McCarthy is the executive editor. Sound design and mixing by Steve Bone, with engineering help from Jeremy Given, Dylan Vukovic, and Mitch Racken. Original music composed by Leonardo Heiblum and Jacobo Lieberman, and produced by Audioflot. More music by the Mexican Institute of Sound. Fact-checking by Alex Lubin. The Spanish adaptation of this podcast was produced by Adonde Media with production help from Sara Barrett, Mariano Payela, and Ana Lucia Murillo. Editing from Ruxandra Gitti. Logistical support from Laura Ubate. Sound design and mastering by Martin Cruz Farga. And executive produced by Martina Castro. Art by Leslie Shaw and Kenton Powell. Special thanks to Marilyn Pittman, Craig Harris, Don Jorge, Miguel Perea, our favorite narco-intellectual Foylan Enciso, Jan Albert Hudson and the Committee to Protect Journalists, Ike Shreesganjaraza, and Nadia Raymond. And here advice, many thanks to Mark Liam Bruni, Cassie Geraldo, Bernardo Loyola, Patty Guerra, Yoni Berkovitz, Andrew Wilcox, Sam Bachoven, Christina Pazanel, Dylan Silberfein, Nicole Huber, Remy Gailey, and Veronique, whose last name we can't pronounce. Can you say your name? Heugebecht. Thanks to all the people who spoke with us in Mexico, in Sinaloa, Juarez, Mexico City, and across the country. And thanks to Laura Waldenberg Carabias and the staff at Vice Mexico. For more on El Chapo and the drug war, including coverage of his trial, visit vicenews.com. I'm Miguel Angel Vega. And I'm Keegan Hamilton. Thanks for listening. ¿Cuánto tiempo va a pasar para que pueda mejorar? Todos somos víctimas de un estado confiscado con un gobierno involucrado en las ganancias de el narco. Es una nación podrida con la población herida. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.